Merry Christmas! <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special Christmas Eve episode of The Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. As always, I'm JT, and I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Well, everyone, yes, it's that time of the year again. The year is nearly gone. Another week and a day, and that will be all she wrote, folks. It's Christmas Eve morning, coming up on noon here in Tower Studios. And I fully understand there are many people out there in the world who either A, don't celebrate Christmas, or B, are just over Christmas. But I do try to accentuate the positives of different holidays. Again, as I say, as I was talking with John from Perth last night, <laughs> life is gray. It's not black and white. Everything is not black and white. And yes, Christmas may be based on a pagan holiday. And yes, Christianity as a religion may have committed a lot of atrocities in history. But guess what? Here at Tower Studios, we don't care. We're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas Eve. I've got my homemade eggnog here, which is very, very nice. So I'll try not to slur too many words as we bring you Christmas with the CIA, which may become a new tradition. Yeah, I was just thinking about it because uh, John had mentioned to me, uh, he asked for some of those CIA files, as I often tell you on air, if you want to know about file two or three or eight or whatever, let me know and I will email them to you. And I got to thinking, it's been quite a while since I've done any CIA files, and I've been doing a heck of a lot of the News of the Damned. Now, the News of the Damned is important because we want to know what's going on current. But this time of year, truth be told, a lot of websites are kind of doing the best of 2021, kind of doing refreshers and top UFO cases of the year, things like that. So instead, we're going we're gonna to throw a spanner in the works here. Or, as you would say in the U.S., we're going to throw a monkey wrench in there. And we're just going to do something a little bit different. And this year, you're going to have Christmas with JT and the CIA. So, again, for those of you out there who aren't sure of what that is, hey, JT, what's this with the CIA? Well, if you go back and look in the archives, I've done, oh, I want to say eight or nine different episodes on the CIA files. So considering what a bust the Pentagon briefing on UFOs was in June, I want to say, and hey, I'm not blowing my own trumpet, but I predicted there wasn't going to be a whole lot to it, folks. The reality is, though, John Greenwald over at, um, what is it, uh, the Black Vault, that's it, because I always get mixed up between the Black Vault and Above Top Secret, which are two excellent websites if you're into ufos well anyway john greenwald over there at the black vault got several thousand documents from the cia over the course of several years that were declassified and he uploaded them for free on the black vault so you can go on there you can download the pdfs and have a read for yourself so what we've been doing is in true tradition of Oh, I don't know what you'd say in the U.S., I guess, uh, potluck. Here in New Zealand, you would say lucky dip. Uh, basically, you put your hand in a bag and you grab a file, and whatever that file is, we cover it. So on this episode, we're not going to cover any news. Like I say, we're just going to have our CIA files. 
But I just wanted to say thank you to a few people who have been so kind to wish the Paranormal Sun and me here at Tower Studios Merry Christmas. So thanks to Dave, who's been a guest on a few times. Thanks to Nate Odd in Pennsylvania. Thanks so much, Nate. Thank you very much, Timmy, as well. And thanks, like I say, to John and Perth for wishing me a Merry Christmas. Adriana and Nico in Texas, thank you so much for the kind words and the Merry Christmas. Max and Chris in Illinois, Merry Christmas to you, and I hope that you have a great one, as well as everyone else out there, each and every one of you in the listening audience. As I say again, I fully realize Christmas isn't everyone's cup of tea, and it's been a few years really since I've been very positive about Christmas. Uh, last year was hard. I mean, this this year has been still difficult, but not as difficult as the year before. Just as I've come to better grips of not not working really, not not getting up and being my workaholic self. But once I lost my parents, and especially once I lost my mom, it's uh, been really difficult on me Christmas time, and it's been really hard to kind of get in the spirit. But this year. I mean, I'm not doing anything massive, don't get me wrong. I'm not running around making sugar cookies and uh, gingerbread men. But I did make the eggnog. I didn't make any last year. And as I say, of course, that has got a heavy lashing of rum and a nice shot of bourbon in there as well. I won't be doing anything here like a roast turkey or anything like that for Christmas dinner. Because again, for those of you in the Northern Hemisphere that are used to Christmas being cold, and I fully understand that it's in your ingrained psyche to think of Christmas as being cold and everybody wanting to huddle around the oven and that. But down here in the Southern Hemisphere, it's summer. Whereas you just had your winter solstice, we had our summer solstice. So A, it's quite warm as it is down here. It's not really tantamount to want to cook things in the oven. And number two, yeah, it's just easier to eat some simple things. So I've got a few things I'll make, but nothing super big or super special. In years gone by, we've done things like um, had nice steaks and uh, and lobster, things like that. Because uh, as we, as as a family, as we got a bit further removed from uh, my childhood and the traditional kind of Christmas meal and Thanksgiving turkey and all that. As once I grew up and left the house, when we would have Christmas holidays or Thanksgiving or whatever, me and my parents together, we tended to just have what we wanted. So, for example, there were years we had prime rib for Thanksgiving. It wasn't always turkey. And now I kind of do the same. With the real exception of St. Patrick's Day, now, there are times on St. Patrick's Day I just don't feel like making anything, so I have something simple. And like I say, this Thanksgiving here, again, doing a turkey and all of that is its a lot of work. Turkey's not cheap here at all, and um, <laughs> funds are tight. So instead of doing that, we went and had a went to the roast shop where you can just get a, a roast and vegetables and, and gravy. And instead of having chicken, because they do have chicken, I had pork because I would prefer a pork roast. So, yeah, as I say, life is gray. Life is not black and white. The older that you get, I feel, the more you realize it. People aren't inherently good or evil. 
good people do some pretty bad things and bad people do some good things from time to time. Now, there are exceptions to that rule at either extreme, but there are stories time and time again about serial killers doing good things for people and really nice and polite people doing some pretty crappy things to their fellow humans. And I know some of those stories of some pretty famous people, but it doesn't really do any good for me to run people down, especially people who are dead. But all I'm saying is, folks, as life goes by day by day faster and faster, the more I'm convinced that there is no black and white. You may have right and wrong, but it's different shades again. It just comes down to, have you tipped the scale further in being a positive influence on the world, or have you tipped it further in being a negative influence? Now again, as I say, I've got on here many, many times and told you I'm no saint, and also I can be a hypocrite with the best of them, but I try and be up, upright and honest with you when it does come to those instances. <laughs> Trust me, I'm the furthest thing from a finished product, as the saying goes. I try very hard. I try and look at the world with a balanced view, but I'm just like everyone else out there. I've got my innate biases and tendencies in certain subjects. Don't even get me started on sports. It's been a it's been a really rough, really rough week with the way the uh, the Seahawks game went. But uh, anyway, it is what it is. So anyway, enough of my ongoing rambling. Now I'm going to be making a post on Instagram about this, but. For those of you out there who might be looking for some last-minute Christmas gifts, maybe you haven't organized things, I can tell you there are still a few things you can do. One of them is our friend Timmy over at Ace of Cups Readings on Instagram. Timmy's been on the show a few times and is going to be on the show again here, upcoming, in the New Year's episode with Dave. Now, Timmy's running a special on the year-ahead tarot reading, and it's a great bargain. I booked it last year, and I can heartily endorse Timmy and the way that she does things. So make sure you go and check out Timmy if you're looking for a good stocking stuffer, kind of like a gift certificate you can give to someone. And then we've got a couple of great authors that have either been guests on The Paranormal Sun or will be guests on The Paranormal Sun coming soon, i.e. already recorded and needs to be edited. So the first one is Chaz at Chaz of the Dead. So you can just go and find Chaz. Just go Chaz of the Dead. Look for him. But his book was the one about Friendship Island in Chile. Now, that's one of the things that JT's asked Santa for this year. And the other one is, of course, Lance and his excellent book called The Led Zeppelin Curse. And Lance and I are very fortunate to find out Lance is located in New Zealand. So we've done a couple one-hour sessions that I'm going to get into an episode and get out to you fairly soon in the new year. We basically had this conversation after I did the Boleskine House episode, and I really enjoyed talking to Lance. He's a great interview and also a great author, and his book is very highly rated. I believe on Amazon it's like 4.3 stars, so definitely worth checking out. So if you're stuck for last-minute gifts, there's three excellent choices for you. Now, again, for those of you out there who are wondering what you can do to support the program, first and foremost, tell others, tell other people out there that you like the program, you like the topics that uh, we cover here at the Paranormal Sun. That's the best way, word of mouth, spread the word. 
The show continues to grow. Over 80 countries have had people listen to The Paranormal Sun. Among the latest on that list, the Ukraine, South Korea, Guatemala, Costa Rica, Bulgaria. So yeah, folks, we are literally all around the world. People all over the world listening in to The Paranormal Sun. And I appreciate each and every one of you who takes the time to do so. Secondly, you can go and give the show a star rating on your podcast platform of choice, and you can leave a review. You can also go and follow The Paranormal Sun on social media. So if you go into the Instagram account, which is the underscore paranormal underscore sun, you go in there and you click the link in the bio that will basically take you to a landing page of everything or you can go into any of the show notes of any of the past episodes and there's a link at the top that says something like you can follow and support the show here click on that link and it will take you to the same place but basically the facebook group and instagram are where i'm most active and again being totally honest folks i've not been up to scratch with posting on Instagram for quite a while like I used to. But it was a lot of work taking a lot out of me. And it was just something that, at the end of the day, I just kind of let go. Um, the show will the show will probably never be like a Joe Rogan, Howard Stern type thing. And that's fine. But at the other, at, at the other end of the spectrum, I do know that I need to promote the show to try and grow the show and get people to listen and hopefully enjoy some of these topics that I cover for you. I mean, things like this, like the CIA files, there's not a lot of people out there covering these, and that's why I try and do something different so you don't just get inundated with the same old stuff week in and week out. So folks, with that all being said, again, thank you each and every one of you who takes the time to listen. Thank you everyone who takes the time to send me news articles and takes the time to get in touch with me. Like I say, thanks so much, Trey, for all the news articles you sent me. I hope that you're having a great lead up to Christmas and the holidays. And everyone else out there, thank you so much. I really do appreciate it. And I would really struggle to do the program without all the great support from you. I couldn't ask for more, honestly. Now, it's about time that we crack open that CIA vault and have Christmas with the CIA. So go away, folks. Get yourself a nice beverage, preferably an adult one if you do drink. Get yourself a nice glass of wine or a beer or a cocktail. Come back and sit down, and we are going to go through these CIA files. And again, there's no rehearsal. I do it live. We look at the file, and I assign a number to it. So if you want to know about a certain file, if you hear me say that I did file 42 or whatever, just Send me an email. Send me a message. Hey, JT, can you email me the PDF of file 42, just like John did in Perth? Uh, some of these, like I say, they're quite difficult to read. Some of them are very old. They go back to the 1950s. They weren't scanned very well when they were uploaded. So I do apologize, as always. Sometimes it's a bit difficult to decipher. But that's what happens when you get quote-unquote live radio when I'm doing it off the cuff and there's no pre-prep where I've read these ahead of time. And then also what we tend to do is if there's things in there that are interesting and I don't know a lot about, I'll tend to just do a live Google search or internet search 
as we talk about it. So folks, I had a look, and this is actually going to be the 11th episode covering these CIA files. But this is a very special one. This is a festive one, because it is Christmas with the CIA. So let's see here. Let's open the bag and see what we've got. So we've got the first one here is document 49. So that's 49. If you want to get a copy of it or you want to know more about it, just ask. Right. And here we go. So this one says. It's a bit hard to read here, but it says it says could lead to suspension of elections. So I can't read the first three or four words. And this one looks like it was released to the public in, oh, no, no, so, sorry, got that wrong. It is from 1978. So it says, Santiago, Chile, Domestic Service in Spanish, 1730 GMT, 16th May, 78 FY, which means something year. I'm not sure <laughs> uh, which uh, which year. But anyway, the CIA, during the time of these files, was monitoring communications all over the world not only in the quote-unquote enemy territories of Russia and the Eastern European countries and other communist-affiliated countries like Cuba, but also countries that were neutral or friendly to the U.S. as well. So it says texts something, uh, boy, this is pretty torn up, sorry, has told that the forthcoming election of 9 i think it's 9 july may be suspended if political and electoral violence increases he said that the government is doing everything to guarantee the tranquility of the country those remarks were made by uh something bolivian president so it must be the bolivian president during a program over the state owned television network Banzer has been in power seven years and hopes to hand over the government to the candidate who wins the elections on the 9th of July. The Bolivian president also publicly stated his support for the official candidate, General Juan uh, Pereira Asbuin. Again, it's hard to read, so I do apologize. Uh, Refosts conflict on details of fallen object. Okay, so so reports conflict on details of fallen object. Here we go. So FY sixteen nineteen thirty one Sucre Radio La Plata in Spanish sixteen thirty GMT, which be four thirty p.m. sixteenth May seventy eight. Summary. We have received another phone call from our audience requesting confirmation of reports that an unidentified object fell in Bolivian territory near the Argentine border. We can only say that the Argentine and Uruguayan radio stations are reporting on this even more frequently, saying that Bolivian authorities have urgently requested assistance from the U.S. National Aeronautics and Space Administration, so NASA, in order to determine the nature of what of that which crashed on a hill in Bolivian territory. Just a few minutes ago, Radio El Espectador of 
uh, uh, oh no, sorry, it is Montevideo, announced that there was uncertainty as to the truth of these reports. Argentinian sources indicated that the border with Bolivia had been closed, but that it might soon be reopened. They also reported that an unidentified object had fallen on Bolivian soil near the Argentinian border, and the local Bolivian authorities had requested aid from the central government, which in turn had sought assistance from the U.S., National Aeronautics and Space Administration, to investigate the case. A La Paz newspaper said today that there is great interest in learning about the nature of the fallen object, adding that local authorities, for security reasons, had cordoned off 200... Um, I can't see. 200... I can't tell what the measurement is, but I would assume it's miles around the spot where the object fell. The object is said to be a mechanical device with a di- diameter of almost 4 meters, which already has been brought to Tariha. There is interest in determining the accuracy of these reports, which have spread quickly throughout the continent, particularly in Bolivia and its neighboring countries. Is it a satellite, uh, a mercantile, or... Is it a satellite, a meteorite, or a false alert? Yeah, okay, so interesting one there, and we're going to pause, and future JT is going to see if he can find anything on that date in the Google machine. Well, folks, it's future JT here, and as is so often the case, you know that oftentimes we don't find a lot when we go looking for these different items, but this one, uh, astonishingly enough, has got a really good uh it's 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 a really well known case so i've got this from the website ignaciodarnade.com and i'll put a link in the show notes to make it easy and it says ufo crash in bolivia witnessed by thousands of people may 6 1978 in el tare mountain bolivia on may 6 1978 at about 4:15 p.m. something crashed into a mountain near el tare on the Baremajo River, the border between the Bolivian province of Tarjia and Argentina. Thousands of people saw this happening and later described the object as being cylindrical in shape, i.e. cigar-shaped, with a flaming tail. It had caused a supersonic bang that was heard up to 150 miles away. And there's a couple of photos here, but unfortunately those photos, the links are broken, so uh, this does look like quite an old web page and it says um source michael hessman 1998 uh on may 6 1978 about 4 15 something crashed into a mountain uh, okay it had okay so i'm just reading the rest after that summary um so it was heard up to 150 miles away and cracked window panes of as far away as 30 miles in every direction The next day, the papers were speculating on what had come down in that godforsaken place. The explanations ranged from meteorites to UFOs and belated re-entry of some Apollo capsule. All of them referred to statements of eyewitnesses. Then it was announced that the Argentinian authorities had sent the 20th unit of the border police to the area in question to look for wreckage on their side of the border. The search in that mountain country could last for weeks, so swarms of reporters went to the nearest big town, Aguas Blancas, to take up 
quarters there and await further developments, as well as to interview eyewitnesses in the town. And in fact, there were a number of witnesses who claimed to have seen the object, most of them describing it as oval or cylindrical and metallic. The army, too, seemed to be convinced that it was a UFO. Corporal Natalio Farfan Ruiz, the, com the, com the commandant of a small border police unit at the little village of La Morona, uh, which had 800 inhabitants at the time, confirmed the crash to Argentinian reporters saying it was about 4.30 p.m. when a cylindrical object made the earth tremble. Just imagine what, have ha what would have happened if the UFO had fallen on the houses. Policeman Juan Hurtado had also seen what happened. It looked like a gigantic white container emitting a trace of white smoke. I saw it clearly. It flew directly above my head. I was on duty and at that moment was talking with three engineers from the mine in La Paz when we saw the object crashing into the El Terre mountain. The impact was so strong that it threw me to the ground. The earth trembled at that moment. Finally, the Bolivian Air Force sent three single-motored AT-6 airplanes, a model from World War II, to the area and discovered the crash site on the southern slope of the El Tare mountain. Whereas the pilots found it impossible to land anywhere near it, the newspaper Clarin of Buenos Aires announced on May 14th that the object had been found. As proof, they quoted the police chief of, of Taria. Our men have discovered the object and inspected it, but have received no instructions for further action. It is a dull metallic cylinder, 12 feet long with a few dents. No one knows what's inside it and we are awaiting the arrival of various technical commissions. A NASA expert is also expected to arrive tomorrow morning. As a matter of fact, no NASA expert came at Tarhia. Instead, two U.S. Air Force officers, Colonel Robert Simons and Major John Heiss, arrived. According to a newspaper, although these officers were officially on leave, they had been instructed to take the object to the U.S. in a Hercules C-130 transport, which was awaiting for them in La Paz. When other newspapers made inquiries at the American embassy regarding the secret mission of Simmons and Heiss, they were met with denial. Only two years later, five relevant documents were released by the U.S. State Department. They revealed that Simmons and Heiss had been assigned to the military attaché of the U.S. Embassy in La Paz and did, in fact, fly to Taria, accompanied by an officer of the Bolivian Air Force, in connection with Project Moondust. Now, Project Moondust... Um I don't want to misspeak. Uh, we will get to Project Moondust one day, but it's got to do with UFOs off the top of my head. The first of these documents was a telex sent by the U.S. ambassador in Bolivia, Paul H. Boker, to the State Department. In that, he quoted newspaper reports and requested the department to ask the relevant agencies whether they could explain what the object could be. Adding, during the next week, more and more UFO reports are coming from this region. The answer was a telex classified secret, dated May 18th, in which the U.S. Secretary of State Cyrus Vance personally declared, preliminary information has been checked with appropriate government agencies. No direction correlation with known space objects that may have re-entered the Earth's atmosphere near May 6th can be made. However, we are continuing to examine any possibilities. He then referred the embassy to State Aerogram A6343, of July 26, 1973, classified secret, which provides background information and guidance to dealing with space objects. In particular, any information pertaining to the pre-impact observations, direction of trajectory, number of objects observed, time of impact, and detailed description, 
including any markings, would be helpful. The next document was a moon dust message of the Office of the U.S. Military Attaché, dated May 24th, addressed to the Division of Foreign Technologies at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and the headquarters of the U.S. Air Force at the Pentagon, classified as confidential, no foreign, no forwarding to foreign nationals. So, super top secret. Under reference Moondust, the military attaché at La Paz reported that they had taken pains to verify the press reports. In addition to that, they had asked the general staff of the Bolivian Air Force and the chiefs of the Bolivian Army, who had declared, apparently, after a first unsuccessful attempt, we have sent search troops to the area in question, but have found nothing. The Army came to the conclusion that there could have been an object there, or maybe not, but to date they had found nothing. The attaché added that he would send two officials to Taria and promised, We will keep you informed if anything turns up. These two officials, we can assume, were Simmons and, and Heiss. Regrettably, no further reports concerning the, the Simmons-Heiss uh, expedition were released, and to get a picture of what happened, we are forced to rely on reports in the Argentinian press. Apparently, however, nobody came to the conclusion that a meteorite had hit the Earth. At the world-famous Smithsonian Institution, there is a data bank of scientific occurrences, or an alarm network that keeps track of every volcanic eruption, every earthquake, and every meteorite collision since 1973, with painstaking accuracy. The data bank reveals no mention of a meteorite falling during May 1978 at the Bolivian-Argentinian border. The Air Force documents reveal that the 1127th Field Activities Group, which coordinated Project Moondust, was interested in another task besides the recovery of UFO wrecks and other space objects, represented by the codename, codename Hummond. This codename, short for Human Intelligence, means the collection of information from human sources through clandestine undercover methods, in contrast to interrogations, reading through files and correspondence, etc. In other words, it meant the collection of information about UFOs from reliable sources through a game of deceit. The method which was chosen to achieve Hummond's goals was so bizarre that nobody outside the UFO community would believe it. It was the birth of the Men in Black, subject of a Hollywood blockbuster movie in 1997. And it's crazy that it was 1997 when that first movie came out. I watched it in the theaters, my friends. Um, yeah, so here we go. First, first CIA file and uh, bombshell. So that is uh, number 49. If you want that document or you want to know more about it. And as I say, I'll have a link to the entire page I just read you uh, in the show notes. Right. So, bam. Yeah, it's definitely Christmas with the CIA. We kicked it off with a good one. Uh, and also just looking at some of the other entries on the Internet, a lot of people say that that is the first real reference of men in black um now i don't know how that is because i know alfred bender and several others talked about men in black in the early 60s at least so yeah i don't see how 1978 could be the first men in black sighting okay so anyway here we go here's another one and this is another one of those where they've been monitoring overseas networks and this is from FBI's London, UK. Subject, take all FYI CIS TV preview, 3rd to 9th May. 
Um, and this is from uh, Moscow TV is what they're monitoring. And then they've got, as always, they've got a list of the times and what's on TV. So, for example, on uh, trying to work out. Oh, okay. So at 8 o'clock, you got Novosti, 8.20, Sports Chance, 8.50 for Young Children. So let's see where the UFO part is. Because sometimes it takes a bit of looking through this. Right, so we're going to hit pause again, and I'm going to find it, because it's obviously not um, jumping out at me. Okay, folks, so this is another very lengthy list of television programs. I can't find an exact date, but guessing from some of the other documents I've read that are similar, I would peg the date at either 89, 90, 91, somewhere in that time period for shows that were on in May. I can't find any listing for UFOs, and I've looked through this whole 10 pages um, five or six times. Maybe it's the eggnog, but I don't think so. Um just think it, it it will be something really usually it's just like a one little line um and it will say something like ufo documentary or news coverage of ufo sighting something like that so what i'm saying is it's not like you're missing out on a lot with this but anyway that is document 50 so we went from one that was really a barn burner to one that's a bit of a fizzer so we'll see. We'll see what number three brings us. So that was document 50. This is document 51. And this is a similar write up. So again, this is from 91. So it's that other one would be in about that same time period. So this one is uh, says unclassified FBI Tel Aviv uh, subject commentary list Moscow in Turkish. And this is for the 19th of June, 1991. Okay, so let's see. Where is the UFO bit? Commander of Soviet troops in Czechoslovakia comments on the withdrawal operation. So this is very much at the end of the Cold War. Um, Soviet historian makes a statement on occasion of the 50th anniversary of Nazi attack against the USSR. Okay. Just trying to find our UFO tie-in. And again, um, I'm not seeing it, but this, this document is much shorter, so just going to hold you a second and see if I can find it. And if not, we'll hit the old pause button, and I'll try and work it out. Yeah, folks, I don't see anything here on UFOs of any type. I mean, the document in of itself is a snapshot in time because it's right at the end of the Cold War. You can tell Soviet troops pulling out of Czechoslovakia, etc. But there's only six points here. And oh, no, no, sorry, sorry. I got it here. Uh, so it's got... Your northern neighbor, the Soviet Union program. And it's got A, the Soviet citizens' plans and problems in connection with the summer vacation. Four minutes. B, reportage on the new hospital built by a Turkish firm in Moscow 
for World War II veterans, three minutes. C, answering a listener's letter on UFO research in the USSR, 2.5 minutes. So, yeah, again, you can see how thorough the CIA was in collecting these files, because that's a two-and-a-half-minute-long bit on a kind of uh, current event show, and they covered it. They made sure to swoop that up and file it away. So that is document 51. Now we're moving on to document 52. Yeah, it's, sometimes it's a bit slow waiting for the PDF to open in that. So again, this is very much in that same time frame from FBI London, UK. PMU Wirelog for 14th December, 1992. Okay, so Pravda, uh, talking about Boris Yeltsin. Deputies react to Yeltsin referendum. Government calls for new socio-political radio TV program. Polish side regrets attack on Russian servicemen. Boy, wouldn't want wouldn't to be on the wrong end of that if I was... Poland and somehow attacked, you know, I uh, hope I would assume it was accidental, but you wouldn't want to go pissing off Russia if you were Poland. Um, yeah, that didn't end well in the past. So, yeah, just trying to find our UFO file. And again, sometimes they're buried quite deep in here. Uh, General caught using plane on private business. Yeah, no shock there. Um, be it in the USSR or other countries. Okay, so we've got it here. And again, this is a really just short snippet, as is often the case. Like I say, it is very much a mixed bag. It says, UKSER, subject Shetland UFO sighting prompts spy plane speculation. Source, London, The Guardian, in English, 14th December, 1992. So, yeah, um, Shetland UFO sighting. Let's see what we can find out. Hold the line, please, caller. And here we go. We're batting two for two when we went looking for something in these files. Uh, and this article is from the Herald. Um, HeraldScotland.com. And it's from the 14th of December, 1992. Eyes lifted to heavens as UFO passes over Shetland. An unidentified flying object scudded through the sky over Shetland on the weekend, leaving a trail of sparks and vapor cone in its wake. At least 19 sightings were reported of the object, glowing white, red, and orange, which whizzed at supersonic speeds over Solomvo oil terminal and southeast over the water on Saturday night. A detailed description of the UFO was given yesterday by Mr. John Winchester, the Coast Guard officer at Solomvo. He said he had a good view for at least 30 seconds on a clear night, and the moon was almost full. It was traveling at a very low angle, well within the atmosphere, and above the clouds, which were perhaps 10,000 feet high. It appeared as if there were some sort of mass at the head of it, with pieces burning off, making sparks. Behind it, there was a vapor cone, like you would see from a jet engine, only bigger. At the center, there was a dull red glow, with brighter light at the edges. Mr. Winchester said it had come out of the northwest and appeared to pass between the village of Bray and the oil terminal. As it flew towards the southeast, the light dimmed and then disappeared. It was moving faster than a jet fighter aircraft, but slower than a shooting star. 
18 other reports from a 40-mile area along the east coast of Shetland described a large white light and smaller lights of various colors traveling at the same speed. One said it looked like an aircraft on fire. Witnesses included a police chief inspector and an optician. Mrs. Hazel Hewson and her husband Roy of Vladibister stopped their car south of Lairwick when they saw the object. They said at first it looked like a helicopter with a searchlight. As it got higher in the sky, we saw there was a big tail behind it, Mrs. Hewson said. There was no sound, but there were sparks coming off it. We both saw bits breaking off. It went very far out to sea, towards the southeastern horizon, like it was just sailing through the sky. Lairwick Observatory did not log the UFO. It was unaware of any natural phenomena on Saturday night, such as ball lightning, which could explain widespread sightings by so many reliable witnesses. Boy, ball lightning is right up there with the planet Venus and some of these um, explanations. At Britain's most northerly air defense radar station on the hill of Saxevoord in Unst, the RAF station commander said nothing unusual had been spotted. He added, however, that radar's equipment was usually concentrated on a different area of the sky. At least he's honest. Air traffic controllers told Coast Guards there was no military or civilian aircraft in the area at the time of the sightings, just before 9 p.m. The object could have been a piece of space junk or a large meteor burning up in the atmosphere. Astronomer Dr. Fiona Vincent, who writes a local magazine series on the night sky in Shetland, had predicted a meteor shower peaking around December the 13th. So there you have it. We've got a CIA monitoring file of a Russian um, newspaper, it looks like. Could have been TV, but it looked like a newspaper, judging by, yeah, uh, judging by the fact that there's no times laid out. And, um, oh, no, no, sorry. There, there are times laid out here, so it's TV program which has pointed us on to a Scottish newspaper. So, yeah, interesting. And this is how these things all interconnect. And it's pretty awesome when, after all these years, I mean, 1992 is a long time, and I found that article pretty much straight away, and it just popped right up. So that one, as I say, if you're interested in that one, that's document 52. And again, I'll link the article, the news article, in the show notes as well. So now we are on to article number 53, or I should say file number 53. Could use some more of that eggnog about right now. It's pretty warm out here in the studio today. Uh, let's see here. So this is an older one. And again, I, as I say, this is a grab bag. These files go from, I think it's either 51 or 52 up to 93, 94. And this is one of the earlier ones. So this is from October 2nd, 1952. Memorandum 2, Director of Central Intelligence through Deputy Director of Intelligence from Assistant Director, Office of Scientific Intelligence. Subject, flying saucers. Can't get more UFO related than that. Problem, to determine whether or not there are national security implications in the problem of unidentified flying objects whether or not adequate study and research is currently being directed to this problem in its relation to such national security implications, and what further investigation and research should be instituted by whom and under what aegis. Okay, so anyone <laughs> anyone out there saying they never took it seriously, 
here we go. Basically, at the inception of the CIA, which was about that time, I think it was founded in 51 or 52, um, they're, they're asking the intelligent question anyone should be asking, is this a national security threat? Okay, this is why I've always laughed when I hear the tried and true line of different military agencies and uh, disinfo types saying, oh, it's it's not a threat to national security. Yeah, okay. So you've got something in your airspace, again, that can appear and disappear, move at speeds multiple times your fastest interceptor jets, uh, move around your missiles with impunity, shut down nuclear missile silos, turn up on military bases and be untouched by your weapons, overfly the capital of the U.S., but oh, it's not a threat to national security. Yeah, okay. Because again, you know, it's everybody drinking moonshine and smoking that wacky tobacco that is the only people who ever see UFOs, right? Right? Because it's all, it's all BS. <laughs> I think you can read my sarcasm, folks, but I just, I'm always baffled when people seriously think that they never took it seriously or they never have investigated these things. And again, I'm on the record. I firmly believe that out of every 100 UFOs, 96, 97, 98 of them can be explained with things we know, i.e. man-made objects, i.e. space junk, debris, meteors, asteroids, etc. But it only takes that one or two, to me, to say something is going on. And again, meteors that stop in midair and go the other direction, uh, I don't know about you, but obviously, I'm not smoking the right wacky weed if you see something like that and, <laughs> and you think it's a meteor. Well, I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn or a tower in Paris if you want to buy them. Uh, I'll take the cash and then you can just go and take possession, okay? So, sorry for the diatribe. Two, facts and discussions. OSI. So, again, OSI was the predecessor of the CIA, the Office of Strategic Intelligence. That's what the CIA's precursor was during World War II. OSI has investigated the work currently being performed on the flying saucers, in parentheses, uh, or sorry, in quotation marks, and found that the Air Technical Intelligence Center, again, that keeps coming up, that ATIC, uh, DI, which I would say is Department of Intelligence, U.S. Air Force, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, is the only group devoting appreciable effort and study to this subject. The ATIC is concentrating on a case-by-case -case explanation of each report, and that this effort is not adequate to correlate, evaluate, and resolve the situation on an overall basis. The current problem is discussed in detail in Tab A. You bet it's not, because case... Cases were pouring in by the hundreds, and they could only explain them away with swamp gas, meteorites, weather balloons, Chinese lanterns, the planet Venus, uh, ball lightning. They could only explain those away so quickly 
They had to at least have a modicum of reality to their claims. For example, you couldn't claim that people saw the planet Venus in broad daylight. Okay, so conclusions. Flying saucers pose two elements of danger, which have national security implications. Hallelujah! <laughs> really? The first involves mass psychological considerations, and the second concerns the vulnerability of the United States to air attack. Bingo, bango, what I've been saying. On and on and on and on. If you can't control your own airspace from UFOs, who's to say foreign entities can't do so or acquire this technology? And on top of it, why should Joe Slob Sixpack cut over a third or more of his paycheck in Texas to you so you can spend half of your whole federal income on the military when you can't even defend it from whatever these things are, right? So this was written about by the CIA in an internal document back in 1952. And yet, time and time again, we've heard that same old sorry BS of, oh, it's not a threat to national security. It's not, it's not got any, any impact on uh, national security, having these strange objects in our skies. Again, whatever it was that flew over Washington, D.C. in 1952, and I haven't covered that yet in a show, they blamed it on weather inversions. Uh, no, I think it was someone sending a signal to say what what whatever was going on. Maybe they were already discussing things with these others. I'm just going to call them others because it, other than the U.S. or a known government, okay? Because that covers everything, be they from Zeta Reticuli, another universe, another dimension, another time, whatever, okay? The others. Maybe they were already discussing things with the United States government or world governments and were getting slow-tracked and said, well, you know what would probably get some attention? Probably if we flew over the most powerful country in the world's capital with impunity, yeah, that would probably get some attention. And it did. But of course, the Air Force was quick to hop out there and say, well, you see, it was a temperature inversion, even though hundreds of people saw these objects flying in formation like they did over Farmington, New Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, again, I digress. But folks, it's hard for me not to get wound up when I read things like this, because it is showing that behind the scenes that they, all these people like me. That may say, well, what is the government doing? Why weren't they investigating these things? Why were they not taking it seriously? Well, again, here, uh, yet again, is another document showing they did. They were taking it seriously. It's just they were taking it seriously inside. And on the outside, they were telling us all, well, there's nothing to see here, folks. Nothing to see. Right. So. Action required. Or sorry, action recommended that the director of Central Intelligence advise the National Security Council of the implications of the flying saucer problem and request the research be initiated. Tab B is a draft memorandum to the NSC for the DCI's signature that the DCI discuss this subject with the Psychological uh, Strat Strategy Board. Uh, again, it's a bit rubbed out. A memorandum to the director uh, 
psychological strategy, strategy, yeah, strater strategy board. Yeah, I'm assuming it's strategy. <laughs> is attached for signature as tab C. That CIA, with the cooperation of PSB and other interested departments and agencies, develop and recommend for adoption by the USC a WSC, sorry, and then it's just cut out. So that's all right. Um, go down here and okay, I see what's happened. So they've scanned the first page twice. That's why we got to the end of the first page and then we started over. So now I'm at the the proper second page. So it says uh, adoption by the NSC, a policy of public information that will minimize concern and possible panic resulting from the numerous sightings of unidentified objects. Again, because, gee, why would people panic when they see these strange objects in the sky that we can't explain and we sure as hell can't do anything about, you know, why would they panic? And then it says, um, H. Marshall Chadwell, Assistant Director, Scientific Intelligence. And then appendages, tab A, memoranda, tab B, letter to National Security Council, tab C, memo to director. Um, and yeah, they've... They've got the same thing scanned again. Maybe it's different dates. We'll just have a very quick look. Yeah, okay, so the first one's October 2nd. The second one is October 2nd. Okay, so I see kind of what's going on. They, they've got it in reverse order, so they've got the latest at the top. And then this one is from September 24th, 1952. Uh, and it says, recently an inquiry was conducted by the Office of Scientific Intelligence to determine whether there are national security implications in the problem of unidentified flying objects. Okay, so again, this is the same thing, just an earlier date. Okay, I'm just trying to find here if there's anything different yeah, okay, actually there is. So, apologies. We'll start at the top. Um, so this is the early one, the earlier one from September the 24th. Uh, memorandum for Director of Central Intelligence through Deputy Director, uh, Subject Flying Saucers. So as I say, one, recently an inquiry was conducted by the Office of Scientific Intelligence to determine whether there are national security implications in the problem of unidentified flying objects, i.e. flying saucers, whether adequate study and research is currently being directed to this problem in its relation to such national security implications and what further investigation and research should be instituted, by whom, and under what aegis. It was found that the only unit of government uh, currently studying the problem is that uh, ATIC, based at Wright-Patterson. Okay, so here's where we get some new info. At ATIC, there is a group of three officers and two secretaries to which come through official channels all reports of sightings. This group conducts investigation of the reports, consulting as required with other Air Force and civilian technical personnel. A worldwide reporting system has been instituted and major Air Force bases have been ordered to take interceptions of unidentified flying objects. 
The research is being conducted on a case-by-case basis and is designed to provide a satisfactory explanation of each individual sighting. ATIC has concluded an arrangement with um, Battelle Memorial Institute for the latter to establish a machine indexing system for official reports of sightings. Since 1947, ATIC has received approximately 1,500 official reports of sightings, plus an enormous volume of letters, phone calls, and press reports. During July 1952 alone, official reports totaled 250. Of the 1,500 reports, Air Force carries 20% as unexplained, and of those received from January through July 1952, it carries 28% unexplained. In an inquiry into the problem, a team from CIA's Office of Scientific Intelligence consulted with a representative of Air Force Special Studies Group discussed the problem with those in charge of the Air Force project at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, reviewed a considerable volume of intelligence reports, checked the Soviet press and broadcast indices, and conferred with three CIA consultants who have broad knowledge of the technical areas concerned. 5. It was found that the ATIC study is probably valid if the purpose is limited to a case-by-case explanation. However, that study does not solve the more fundamental aspects of the problem. These aspects are to determine definitely the nature of the various phenomena which are causing these sightings, and to discover means by which these case these causes and their visual or electronic effects have have uh, have uh, sorry the visual or electronic effects may be identified immediately. The CIA consultants stated that these solutions will probably be found on the margins or just beyond the frontiers of our present knowledge in the fields of atmospheric, ionospheric, and extraterrestrial phenomena, with the added possibility that the present dispersal of nuclear waste products might also be a factor. They recommend that a study group be formed to perform three functions. A. Analyze and systemize the factors which constitute the fundamental problem, B. Determine the fields of fundamental science, which must be investigated in order to reach an understanding of the phenomena involved, and C. Make recommendations for the initiation of appropriate research. Dr. Julius A. Stratton, Vice President of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, so MIT, has indicated to the CIA that such a group could be constituted at that institute. Similarly, Project Lincoln, the Air Force's air defense project at MIT, could be charged with some of these responsibilities. 6. The flying saucer situation contains two elements of danger, which in situation of international tensions have national security implications. These are psychological. With worldwide sightings reported, it was found that up to the time of the investigation, there had been in the Soviet press no report or comment even satirical, on flying saucers. Though Gromyko had made one humorous mention of the subject. With a state-controlled press, this could result only from an official policy decision. The question therefore arises as to whether or not these sightings, one, could be controlled, two, could be predicted, and three, could be used from a psychological warfare point of view, either offensively or defensively. The public concern with the phenomena which is reflected both in the U.S. press and in pressure of inquiry upon the Air Force, indicates that a fair proportion of our population is mentally conditioned to the acceptance of the incredible. 
In this fact lies the potential for the touching off of mass hysteria and panic. B. Air Vulnerability The U.S. air warning system will undoubtedly always depend upon a combination of radar screening and visual observation. The USSR is credited with the present capability of delivering an air attack against the U.S., Yet at any given moment now, there may be current a dozen official, current a dozen official unidentified sightings, plus many unofficial ones. At any moment of attack, we are now in a position where we cannot, on an instant basis, distinguish hardware from phantom. And as tension mounts, we will run the increasing risk of false alerts and the even greater danger of falsely identifying the real as a phantom. Okay, so what they're saying there, and I fully agree is at that time, and well, up to this day, obviously they were very concerned that the USSR would launch a first strike. Now, what they're saying there is a UFO could be misidentified as an an incoming Soviet bomber, because this was before intercontinental ballistic missiles that could carry nukes, that they would see it coming over the horizon, think it was a Soviet bomber, and order a counter-strike, right? Or vice versa. It could be a Soviet bomber, but they might think that it's what they're calling a phantom or a UFO. And the truth is, this actually happened during the Cold War. And again, it's something I will get to in future. 7. Both of these problems are primarily operational in nature, but each contains readily apparent intelligence factors. 8. From an operational point of view, three actions are required. A. Immediate steps should be taken to improve identification of both visual and electronic phantoms so that in the event of an attack, instant and positive identification of enemy planes or missiles can be made. B. A study should be instituted to determine what, if any utilization, could be made of these phenomena by U.S. psychological warfare planners and what, if any, defense should be planned in anticipation of Soviet attempts to utilize them. Okay, so you note there that the first comment is, how can we use this to F with the enemy? It's not, it's not, hey, first and foremost, how do we defend if it's used against us? It's, no, no, how do we weaponize this? It is so classic. The military-industrial complex, that is the very first go-to, how can we weaponize this? Classic. (sighs) C. In order to minimize risk of panic, a national policy should be established as to what should be told the public regarding the phenomena. Yes, and what has been told the public is that if you see these things, you're either misidentifying simple things in the sky, like Venus, or swamp gas, or weather balloons, or ball lightning, or you're batshit crazy, or you've been drinking too much, drinking that hillbilly moonshine, we're smoking that uh, wacky tobacco. So, yeah, and that has lasted to this day. It's only just now getting to where some people actually feel like they don't have the stigma and they can come out and talk about it. 9. Other intelligence problems which require determination are A. The present level of Soviet knowledge regarding these phenomena. B. Possible Soviet intentions and capabilities to utilize these phenomena to the detriment of the U.S. security interests. C. The reasons for silence in the Soviet press regarding flying saucers. 10. Additional research, deferring in character and emphasis from that presently being performed by Air Force, 
will be required to meet the specific needs of both operations and intelligence. Intelligence responsibilities in this field as regards both collectors uh, uh, both collection and analyses can be discharged with maximum effectiveness only after much more is known regarding the exact nature of these phenomena. 11. I consider this problem to be of such importance that it should be brought to the attention of the National Security Council in order that a community-wide coordinated effort towards its solution may be initiated. E. Marshall Chadwell, Assistant Director, Scientific Intelligence. But they didn't take it seriously, right, folks? Because there's nothing to take seriously, of course, you know? It's all mirages and weather balloons and Canadian geese and whatever else you want to blame it on. Again, it's just mind-blowing that there's the answer. They, They were taking it seriously, and they just told us that there was nothing to see here. Right, so we've got two more here see what the next one has to show us so that one that we just covered that was quite lengthy that is file 53 this one here is obviously now file 54 and this is one from 1990 so a newer one unclassified fbi's uh con con <laughs> concat concatenated daily reports oh, i've never seen that word Right. Classification unclassified. 27th April 1990. Uh, Pravda reports on Gorbachev Ural's visit. So again, this will have various things that were going on in the Soviet Union. And we just have to find where the UFO tie-in is. So this was obviously, again, at the very tail end of the Cold War. Okay, so where is our UFO tie-in? Right, okay, folks, so we got a bit of text here. So again, we're just going to hit pause, and then future JT will chime in when we've found it. Okay, so I'm glad that I did because uh, this is a, a, a very good, it's, it's actually a point-by-point interview with, uh, sorry, not Boris Yeltsin, with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. So, yeah, it's um, it's it's quite good, actually, if you want to know a bit about kind of what was going on at the end of the Cold War in the USSR. So the question is, there was the following question. Two, does the government study which phenomena, or sorry, such phenomena, as unidentified flying objects? The president replied that as far as he was aware, there exist scientific collectives engaged in studying such phenomena. So, very brief, basically a short paragraph. But again, we know now, because of the Russian files that have been released, the Soviet files, I should say, not Russia, the USSR. But it's very difficult because, again, they're in Russian. And there's only so many people in the UFO community that have taken the time to really delve into it. Now, at the end of the Cold War, George Knapp and some others, and I do believe, I want to say Jacques Vallée, so if I've got that wrong, sorry, but I do believe Jacques Vallée pulled together a group of people and went to the former Soviet Union 
and had a look at these files when they were cracked open. And there's a lot of fascinating stuff. I mean, that's where the Veronia's stuff comes from. It was right at the end of the Cold War, and so it actually made it into Western newspapers. So again, that is document 54. And now we're on to the lucky last four, this Christmas with the CIA special. This one is number 55, obviously. And this one says classification. Now, anytime it's blacked out, folks, I just say redacted. So classification and it's redacted. Central Intelligence Agency. Information from foreign documents or radio broadcasts. Country, Germany, USSR. French Equatorial Africa, Syria, Iran. Subject, military, unconventional aircraft. Now, this date of information, 1952-1953. How published? Daily, thrice weekly newspapers. Where published? Athens, Brasserville, Tehran. So, uh, Brasserville will be in French Equatorial Africa. Uh, date published, 11th March through the 20th of May, 1953. Language, Greek, French, Persian. Uh, source newspapers as indicated. Engineer claims saucer plans are in Soviet hands. Sightings in Africa, Iran, and Syria. So, didn't have to wait long to get to that. German engineer states Soviets have German flying saucer experts and plans. Athens, I. Vredyeni, 13th May, 53. Vienna, Special Services. Uh, according to recent reports from Toronto, a number of Canadian Air Force engineers are engaged in the construction of a flying saucer to be used as a future weapon of war. The work of these engineers is being carried out in great secrecy at the A.B. Rowe Company, so that's R-O-E Company, transliteration from the Greek. Flying saucers have been known to be actuality since the possibility of their construction was proven in plans drawn up by German engineers towards the end of World War II. George Klein, a German engineer, stated recently that though many people believe the flying saucers to be a post-war development, they were actually in the planning stage in German aircraft factories as early as 1941. Klein said he was an engineer in the Ministry of Speer, so meaning Albert Speer, who in 1942 was Minister of Armament and Ammunition for the Third Reich and was present in Prague on the 14th of February 1945 at the first experimental flight of a flying saucer. So they're talking about the uh, Hannibal. Uh, ha Hannibal's, I might have pronounced it wrong, but it's the one you often see these things where they say this is the German flying saucer. And that was the 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 Hannenbau or the Hannenbaum. I I just can't remember. I think it's Bau because Baum is tree in in German. During the experiment, Klein reported the flying saucer reached an altitude of twelve thousand four hundred meters. Folks, that's uh, thirty five thirty six thousand feet within three minutes and a speed of two thousand two hundred kilometers per hour. Yeah, that's uh. Let's see, where's where's JT's calculator? Um, so that's 1,375 miles an hour. Now, I could be wrong, but, well, definitely, at that, if that was during the war, that's faster, that, far faster than any aircraft could operate during the war. The uh, Even at the very end, the ME-262 and those, 
you were talking about maybe 600 miles an hour or a little more. Uh, so it's more than double that. The speed of these saucers would reach 4,000 kilometers an hour. So that's Klein emphasized in accordance with German plans, the speed of these saucers would reach 4,000 kilometers per hour. One difficulty, according to Klein, was the problem of obtaining the materials to be used for the construction of the saucers. But even this had been solved by German engineers toward the end of 1945, and construction on the objects was scheduled to begin, Klein added. Klein went on to state that three experimental models had been readied for tests by the end of 1945, or sorry, 1944, built according to two completely different principles of aerodynamics. One type actually had the shape of a disc with an interior cabin and was built at the Mitte, um, unidentified transliteration from Greek factories, so they're just saying they don't have that quite right, uh, the name of the factories which had also built the V-2 rockets. This model was 42 meters in diameter. The other model was the shape of a ring, with raised sides and a spherically shaped pilot's cabin placed on the outside, in the center of the ring. This model was built at the Cabermole and Shriver factories. Uh, unidentified, both names transliterated from Greek. Okay, so 42 meters, that's over 120 feet. Both models had the ability to take off vertically and to land in extremely restricted area, like helicopters. During the last few days of the war, when every hope for German victory had been abandoned, the engineers in the group stationed in Prague carried out orders to destroy completely all the plans on their model before the Soviet forces arrived. The engineers at the Mitte factories in Breslau, however, were not warned in sufficient time of the Soviet approach and the Soviets therefore succeeded in seizing their material. Plans, as well as specified personnel, sorry, specialized personnel, were immediately sent directly to the Soviet Union under heavy guard, coincidental with the departure from Berlin of the creator of the Stuka, or the Ju-87, who later developed the K, uh, KIG-13 and 15 in the Soviet Union. Oh no, sorry, the MiG-13 and 15. According to the report, nothing is known of the whereabouts of the uh, Hamber Mall since his disappearance from Prague. Shriver died recently in Bremen, and Mitte, who escaped in a Messerschmitt, Messerschmitt 163, is in the U.S. Klein was of the opinion that the saucers were at present being constructed in accordance with German technical principles and expressed the belief that they will constitute serious competition to jet-propelled airplanes. Klein further stated that it was very possible to construct flying saucers for civilian air travel, that they could carry 30 to 40 passengers at a speed of 4,000 kilometers per hour. He added, however, that the tremendous amount of material necessary for their construction did not warrant, <laughs> warrant their being built exclusively for civilian air travel. His opinion was shared, he stated, by Giuseppe Beluzzo, the Italian specialist, with whom Klein had been corresponding for some time. Delayed report on your saucers seen in Ubagi Shari, Br uh, Brazzaville, France, Equateur, 11 March 53. The Meteorological Service of French Equatorial Africa has authorized this newspaper to publish today the following account about four flying saucers, in quotes, seen on the 22nd of November 1952 over Bokaranga, 
Ubangi Shari. At approximately 2200 hours, Father Carlos Maria, a Capuchin missionary, Lasone, his companion, and four other persons were driving on the road to Bukaranga when they suddenly noticed a large disc traveling overhead in the same direction as they. Las, uh, sorry, it's Lasamone extinguished the car's lights, but the disc disappeared in the distance. A short while later, in the same re- spot, they saw four discs motionless in the air. Father um, Marsone's description follows. We could see them clearly. Two were above and two below, but all four had no point of contact. At that moment, they had a silvery color like that of the moon. I would say their diameter was somewhat between 30 to 40 centimeters. They moved several times, but each time seemed only same that only the two lower ones were rotating. Just before they, all four, began to move, they lit up brightly like suns. Then it looked as though they rearranged themselves to move in circular fashion so as, retur- as to return to their starting point. On stopping, they lost their brilliant color and regained the silvery one. During their rotation, they seemed slightly oval. I cannot say whether it was due to a new shape they assumed while in flight or on the oblique position they had assumed while moving. Each time they turned, they had that shape and that profusion of light. We observed them for about 20 minutes. After their final turn, they remained motionless in the initial position for several moments. Then they disappeared, headed in the direction from which we had come. What I saw was no meteor, was, sorry, not a meteorite, was no aerolite, shooting star, or anything of the kind. It could only have been a man-made machine. La Simone then gave an equally detailed version as follows. So sorry, that first one wasn't from La Simone, it was from Maria. So the, this one from La Simone. At about 2200 hours, we observed four halos of silvery light grouped in a square formation and located above light clouds. The night was very clear. At one point, the four halos were on the horizon, ranged in a line in the direction of Busami. Suddenly, um, well, whatever, Busome, it's hard to tell with the uh, typing. Suddenly, one of them lit up in a vivid red, causing its shape to be distinguished. It was like a cigar, thicker in the fore section. The center section constituted about one-third of the total link, length and appeared opaque in the light, with perfectly symmetrical lines. Flying above the clouds, this object headed in our direction at considerable speed, about equal to that of an average plane. About five or six kilometers away, it halted without changing its lights, and then climbed again vertically. The stop was abrupt, and the glow became silvery again. The other three on the horizon then began to move in the same way as the first, and joined it to form a square once again. Report flying saucer seen in Syria. Athens, La Messenger de Athens. The Damascus newspaper Alabaya reports that flying saucers were seen recently above the city of Homs, Syria, coming from the south. Luminous objects seen in the sky over Abadan, Tehran, 20th May, 53. This newspaper was informed by its correspondent in Abadan that at 1855 hours on the 18th of May, 1953, a luminous object was seen in the sky over Abadan. The object was reported to be as bright as the sun and to have the shape of a new moon, but several times larger than a new moon. It traveled extremely fast and could be seen for 20 minutes. It was also reported that the same object was seen over all the oil areas in Kur- in Kuristan. Okay, 
a lot to unpack there. So first, we'll we'll start with the last point first. New moon, so boomerang shaped, right? Like crescent moon shaped. But wow, that the whole thing about the flying saucer and Nazi scientists. Depending on what you look into, and I've seen it talked about time and time again by different people that I I actually trust and admire for their coverage of what is called the Fourth Reich or the survival of Nazism after World War II in places like Argentina, Chile, and South America, and elsewhere. A lot of those people have basically said that the flying saucer thing was all made up by um, basically Aryan nations or neo-Nazis after the war. But here we have a CIA document saying otherwise. Basically, a CIA document from 1952-1953 from a German engineer named, talking about these, this flying saucer, that there was a test, because again, there has been a lot of contention over whether there was ever a test. I heard that, well, they may have had some plans drawn up, but there was never actually a working model created. Now, do I believe that this Hannibal or Hannibal, I think it's Hannibal, like I say, do I believe that that is the the cause and the sighting of the Foo Fighters in World War II? No way. For two reasons. First off, as Klein says, this engineer, the the, the test flight was only done in, I want to say, April, May 1945. So right at the very end of the war, right? And secondly, the Germans saw Foo Fighters too. The Japanese saw Foo Fighters too. Uh, uh, February was when they had the test. The U.S. pilots in the Pacific saw Foo Fighters too. So this couldn't be, this couldn't explain all of them. And in fact, it would explain very few because test flight on the 14th of February, and he said that construction on the objects was scheduled to begin towards the end of 45, i.e. it still hadn't left the test phase. Fascinating. Fascinating to me anyway, folks. Because again, I've heard time and time again that Nazi UFOs, quote-unquote UFOs, meaning a flying saucer, but a conventional, meaning built with nuts and bolts on Earth, flying saucer shape and design. Now, the top-secret Canadian one, I would say, is probably, without looking into it too much, it's probably the Avro flying saucer, which is the most famous actual man-made flying saucer that's known. And if you've ever seen a photo and someone said, this is a real flying saucer and it's got a pilot in it, you're probably looking at the Avro flying saucer made in Canada. So, folks, I hope that you enjoyed those. Very interesting. Again, I learned a lot. And again, this is all just luck of the draw, right? But we pulled that last file and it's the bombshell right at the very end of the episode, which is awesome because it keeps people tuning in so with all that being said my friends again if you celebrate christmas have a great christmas have a happy new year if you don't celebrate christmas have a great rest of the month the year's almost over i hope you all stay safe i will be back soon i'm not quite sure 
how and and what we're going to do, but we're going to have the show I recorded with Timmy and Dave, which just basically was a big catch up and kind of a round table of what this year has been like. Me and Dave talked a lot about UFOs and we had some audio issues. We had some uh, audio issues on Timmy's end. So Timmy didn't speak a lot. And I really do apologize because I would have loved to involve Timmy more. But Timmy was trying to be the good host and not chime in too much when there were audio issues. So we just had a bad connection this time, unfortunately. But that will be coming out. And then I'll probably do a review of last year's predictions. And anybody who's written in with this year's predictions has probably your next couple of shows. And they'll be out around New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. As for the rest of this week, I don't think you'll get anything else. So this is your Christmas present, your Christmas with the CIA and JT episode. So folks, take care, stay safe. If you drink, don't drive, be careful out there, take care, and we will talk to you soon.